The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. How do we know when we're paying too much and that the price has actually increased? Sometimes it's quite hard. And this story really starts with me driving into a service station a few weeks ago, having just listened to the financial report on the radio. I love a good list of prices. So the Brink crude price, I was told, had gone up by two US dollars a barrel to over $90 for the first time in seven years. I thought that was interesting as I drove into the service station. And as I was driving in, I was looking up at the price of fuel thinking, now, am I getting a good deal here? Because... I could see that there was a price, but also there was another sign right next to it which said I could get a special loyalty card discount. And as I stopped the car and turned off the engine and started hunting around my pockets and in the glove box for my loyalty cards, which I can never find when I need them, I walked in and I gave them my cards. There was some satisfying beeps and I paid my money and got back in the car and drove out thinking, now... Did I pay extra for that fuel or not? There seemed to be some discounts. I was feeling good about the discounts, but what actually happened there? Because I know that prices have gone up and I know that there's been lots of talk about inflation and you've probably heard about it too, where politicians in particular are blaming all sorts of people. The national opposition has said that it's all about the government. It's spending too much money. It's demand-led inflation, lots of overspending by government in the wake of COVID. And that's what's caused the inflation. The government comes back and says, hey, don't blame us for a big increase in freight costs and oil prices overseas. Nothing to do with us. Uh, You're pointing at the wrong party here. So who's right? Of course, The real truth is somewhere in the middle and the fingers of blame, which are pointed at both government and fiscal policy and central banks with monetary policy. And then, of course, random commodity price spikes up and down. But what about the role of companies themselves when they set their prices? Have we seen a change in recent years whereby some companies have more market power? And they're able to push up their price when things are under stress, when supplies are short, when there's plenty of demand from consumers and they're standing in queues and there's a bit of a panic on to see where or not you can get the thing you really need. It's much easier to push through price increases that way. So I asked the question this week and when the facts change, has part of the inflation that we've seen in New Zealand actually come from concentrated industries using their market power to push up prices more than they otherwise would when the sun shines, when suddenly the price goes up and maybe you didn't notice it. And that dawned on me as I was buying my petrol that day. But there are two other sectors where there are also concerns. And we know that because there are official inquiries into whether these sectors are exercising their market power to charge higher prices than they otherwise would if they were truly competitive. Now, we know from the fuel retailing sector, of course, that uh, there has already been a market study and it concluded in the fuel sector that there had been some overcharging and they've changed some of the rules around the wholesale structure of the market and the way that petrol stations display their prices to 
try and push down on that market power being exercised. So that's the first one. But right now, the supermarket sector is being investigated by the Commerce Commission about whether it is overcharging. Uh, The study is still ongoing, but we know some of the numbers that the earnings before interest and tax overseas by supermarket operators is around about 3% of gross sales. In New Zealand, it's more like just under 5%. So nearly 2% difference, an increase in profit margins here versus overseas, which 2% doesn't sound like a big deal. But when you're selling tens of billions of dollars of groceries every year, it really does make a difference. Remember, we have a duopoly of foodstuffs, which owns Pack and Save and New World and Foursquare. And on the other hand, Woolworths, the Australian-owned conglomerate, which operates Countdown here. Now, they have a duopoly. And when you walk into any of these stores, it feels like there's plenty of competition. There seems to be discounts and promotions all over the place. But the trouble is, you're never quite sure whether you're getting the 50% off this week or maybe it's the 30% off this week. And in effect, you're paying a higher price than would normally be the case. But that's something worth focusing on. Also in the building material sector, where we know that we've seen 20% price inflation in the last year or so, as there's been plenty of demand from government and house builders for all sorts of building materials, many of which are sold by just two companies in New Zealand, Fletcher Building and Carter Holt. Not only do they make the building materials, but they also distribute them through their own chains. Placemakers distributing Fletcher Building materials, it's owned by Fletcher Buildings, and Carter's, which is owned by Carter Holt. So it is easier to exercise market power when not only are the only ones selling that type of material, but they also control the only place where they can buy it. That's why the next market study off the rank will be for the building materials sector. So this week, we look at just how much of the inflation has come from increased market power and a flexing of muscles, a making of hay while the sun shines. We speak to Donald Curtin, who is an independent economist now, but for nearly 12 years worked for the Commerce Commission looking at structures of markets and who was exercising market power and who wasn't. And then we spoke to Jared Kerr, who looked at what's happening with inflation globally and how we're certainly seeing some of the big increases in prices coming from competitive pressure. That's this week on when the facts change, when the sun shines, when supply is short and demand is up. Those with market power are putting up their prices, or more accurately, reducing the size of their discounts. I'm Bernard Hickey. That's this week on When the Facts Change. First up, to find out where inflation is coming from, I thought I'd talk to Donald Curtin, who is a longtime economist based in New Zealand, an independent economist now, who worked for 12 years at the Commerce Commission, keeps a close eye on prices internationally and locally, and what it is that is driving the various moves in prices. Well, hello, Donald, and welcome to When the Facts Change. It's great to see you. And I'm curious about... um, what you've seen in your own life with inflation and prices uh, over the summer and the last year or so? Yeah, well, look, it's been remarkable, Bernard. I, I think inflation pretty much everywhere has surprised on, on the upside. I was on holidays down in Golden Bay over Christmas, New Year, when, when the latest American inflation rate came out. 
And I could not believe it. You would have won pints in a pub if you were offering a bet last year that inflation would be 7% in the States. No, you could have given huge odds. Nobody would have taken the bet. Who, who would have bet that our inflation was going to be running close to, to 6% or that the Brits are running at five numbers that we literally haven't seen uh, in, in the States uh, since the early 1980s, in Britain since the early 90s. And really, you'd have to go way back to sometime in the 1980s uh, to find an inflation rate like we're currently got in New Zealand. So uh, one way or another, I think inflation has uh, popped out of the woodwork in much stronger uh, or virulent fashion than practically anybody expected. Even the professionals at the reserve banks who were supposed to be at this, it's caught, caught everybody by surprise. Why do you think we're seeing inflation seem to pop up everywhere at the same time at around about the same sorts of levels, you know, 7% in the US, uh, 4%, 3 or 4% in Australia, 5% in New Zealand. What's, what's um, broadly, do you think, going on here around the world before we dive into New Zealand? Yeah, sure. I, I, I think there are a bunch of things. Um, and the first one is, is the settings of, of fiscal and monetary policy. And I'm not saying anything unusual here, but... When you push monetary policy as, as hard as it has been pushed in various jurisdictions, you push inflation rates down to nothing. Not much may happen for a while. I mean, monetary policy is, famously has long and variable lags and takes a long <laughs> time for stuff to happen. But if you bring interest rates down to zero, and you keep them there for long enough, and and you do things like buying bonds to keep bond rates down as well, sooner or later, I, I think it was kind of inevitable there would be some kind of inflationary payoff. And, and we saw that most obviously, I think, in asset markets. And you know yourself, you've talked a lot about the housing market, that if, if you get first mortgage rates down to two point something, which was probably where they got to in, in New Zealand at the very low, uh, you're going to have asset prices uh, like house prices just running away. So uh, monetary policy was always probably going to have some ultimate impact on inflation. And in the near term was probably going to have quite a serious impact on asset prices. So all that came to roost. So that, that's point one. Uh, point two is fiscal policy. Just when you had monetary policy at, at full tilt, uh, you had fiscal policy with the lever moved to, to very supportive as well in the States, in Australia, here, everywhere. Um, everybody had job support schemes, discretionary government spending, infrastructure, you name it. So again, that, that, that is putting uh, pressure on the capabilities of a lot of economies to, to respond. It's, it, it pushes, uh, it brings capacity constraints into play fairly quickly uh, when fiscal policy is also very supportive. And how much of a factor do you think is the, um, the rise in oil prices, gas prices over the last year or two, along with the um, rise in container rates and air freight prices, um, which seem to be linked either to the COVID uh, restrictions and disruptions 
or completely different, separate um, geopolitical issues in the Middle East and Russia and and even climate change. Yeah, they're the other two broad things that are going on everywhere as well. The oil price, I think, is is probably not so much COVID-related, though, again, a a post-COVID surge in demand is part of the story, but the oil price is its own story. And if you unpick the inflation rates all over the Western world, they, they transport fuel uh, component it has always been one of the strongest, if not the strongest. So that's going on there. And that's a whole bunch of stuff, like you said, geopolitics, Russia, surging demand, restrained supply. I was just reading this morning that there are people who reckon that the oil price is going to go to a hundred US dollars a barrel. And yeah, we're living with 87 US dollars at the moment. So if it goes to 100, basically you're talking a litre of petrol is going to be $3.50. So there's no no great relief on that front either. And then, as you say, the other complicating thing uh, is the effect of COVID on all the supply chains, freight costs, disruptions to to, uh, production chains around the world. And you've had an unpleasant combination of people coming out of COVID, they haven't been traveling overseas, they've got money to spend, and all this money is hitting the shops just at a time when you know the manufacturers haven't been able to make the stuff that people are trying to buy. And and one of the, the interesting things is how that's turned up in the inflation rate and the price of cars. Because, you know, the manufacturers in, in China and Japan, you know, they're in lockdown. They can't get the stuff on the boats, whatever the reason. Uh, but people are, are cashed up and want a new car um, and they can't get it. And one of the biggest contributors to that 7% inflation rate in the States was actually the price of secondhand cars. Uh, because people are bidding for the limited stock of cars that are available. And if there aren't new ones, they're buying secondhand ones. So that's going on. So there you've got fiscal policy, monetary policy, oil prices and commodity prices in general have been rattling along. You look at our own dairy prices, they've been rattling along. And then you get the, the COVID stuff of supply constraint, demand picking up and just all sorts of production barriers and hitches and glitches being, being encountered and inevitably it leads to shortage and, and price rises. So we've got a you know quite a lot happening overseas, and you've got this sort of slightly um, hot combination of supply shortages and also demand increases coming together at the same time. But there is some stuff happening locally now. Um, these things get political often quite fast, and the opposition have accused the government of driving a lot of the inflation by increasing spending, which is only part of the story. But I'm curious about. How much of a factor is globally and locally there is in companies who have a lot of pricing power, maybe they're a monopoly or a duopoly, um, who are able to increase prices more in a period like this uh, when you've got um, supply shortages and demand increasing, where they exercise their market power by more than perhaps they uh, would have done in the past? And whether that might be a factor in New Zealand's particular brew of inflation. Yeah, let, let, let's try and unpack that a bit. I, I think my, my first bet would be that the things we're talking about up to now explain the vast bulk of everything. 
So while while there is possibly you know some uh, contribution from competition issues or market power issues or ability to jack up prices issues, it has to be somewhere in the tuppenny halfpenny place compared to everything else that's going on, and we know that because you know so many countries are in the same place, and it's unlikely. That they've all had, you know, a huge increase in market power for some reason, and um, so that's probably not that the immediate moving part. Um, but that said, it's an issue worth looking at because we know um, that the New Zealand market is a relatively concentrated market, and that's partly in the nature of things. We're, we're relatively small. We're only going to have a limited number of some certain kinds of companies. We're never going to have 25 you know, mobile phone companies or you know, 100 banks or whatever it is. So let's start accepting that, yes, there tend to be a few rather large players uh, in, in a lot of fields. And they probably do have a degree of, of pricing power so that they can set prices uh, higher than otherwise. And you know yourself, Bernard, you've, you've looked at the, the uh, petrol market study that the Commerce Commission did. You've, you've looked at the grocery one that we're still waiting to see the results of. And it's certainly true that uh, as far as those market studies have shown, the level of prices in New Zealand is higher than it ought or could be under a more competitive uh, regime. And we know that um, when the Commerce Commission looked at the petrol market, it was struck by the fact that when you took off government taxes and just looked at the cost of the underlying petrol, it seemed to be higher than in a lot of places that you'd expect to be some pot like us, that the petrol companies did appear to be maintaining prices higher than in a more competitive market. And we've seen suggestions of that in the grocery, the supermarket study that the Commerce Commission is, is doing at the moment. And they did a comparison of you know, grocery bills, essentially, in New Zealand compared to a bunch of other places. And, and they, these things are always you know, tricky to do. But that said, the results showed that, again, uh, prices looked high by international standards. And again, the rates of return for, for the, the supermarket duopoly uh, were unusually high for, again, something that, that is kind of a middle-of-the-road business. It's not like oil drilling or something where it's high risk, high reward. This is a, a relatively standard commercial line of activity. And I'm, I'm sure if, as the Commerce Commission works its way through other areas like building materials, which is, is the next one on, on the runway, uh, you know, there, there's the potential to find more evidence of the high prices and the high profits you'd expect in, in, oligopolistic kind of markets, the, the ones that we tend to have. And um, and in passing, I might say that, that I think the whole institution of market studies uh, is a great idea, that if there are potential issues with not enough players in a market, people not being given a good enough deal, let, let's deal with it. Let's go and establish the facts, establish the profitability, establish the level of prices 
by international standards and if we can fix it do so I think we're on the right track in in looking at the likes of the petrol companies uh, the grocery companies the the building uh, supply people um, so we can bank all that and I suspect as the years go by we'll see the commission being asked to look at other relatively concentrated industries as well do you think do you think that um, the size of the impact from some areas, perhaps being a little bit less competitive than they could be, is a significant one within that 5 6% inflation we're seeing? Or is it you know, not a, a big deal that is, is a game changer if we were to fix those issues? My guess is, is that in general, I tend to think yeah, well of businesses. And I wouldn't like to suggest that, you know, the whole of New Zealand was in on, on a rort. And I like good businesses to do well. Uh, but that said, you look at things like the early results from the grocery and, and the results from the petrol station inquiry. And there is room, I think, for, for a rollback of some of the prices uh, that we've been experiencing. How much of our current five or six percent inflation could we roll back by doing that? I suspect not a lot. 80, 90, 95 percent of everything is down to the effects of fiscal monetary policy, commodity prices and COVID. Um, but there's probably something at the margin that if we could roll back uh, higher prices in the supermarket aisles are, are higher prices at the petrol station. Um, if we keep plugging away at where there may be competitive bottlenecks and where consumers are not getting a great deal, I suspect the cumulative impact over time uh, could amount to something useful. Again, I say, it, you know, will it suddenly make 5% or 6% inflation go away? No, it won't. Uh, but every little helps. And your better functioning markets helps. Uh, and the fact that, that a lot of family budgets are under pressure at the moment, because at least for now, uh, wages aren't, and people's earnings aren't matching the inflation rate. So whatever you get, you know, can get at the petrol uh, forecourt or in the supermarket aisle. It's just a little something extra. It's not the end of the world. But if you can get your money to go a little further than it would have, at a time when household budgets are being stretched. Well, that's a good thing. Now, just looking um, globally, um, in the United States in particular, but also in the European Union, there has been a push to try to regulate some of the big tech companies, which um, some uh, competition regulators and some critics have said have become much more powerful um, in their markets than they used to be and are sometimes using their market dominance to buy out competitors or to uh, bully um, uh, suppliers into cutting their prices. Uh, um, do there has been a you know a shift in the way that we buy things, often online, um, the rise of Amazon, of eBay, um, use of Uber and various others, where the network effects often seem to push certain markets like uh, uh, online advertising through social media or online advertising through search to one particular company. Do you think that concentration of... Um, market power online into, you know, one one winner takes all in some sectors might be a factor that is present in this inflation and can it be constrained if it is 
um, through regulation, particularly out of the United States and the European Union? Well, look, I think you've, you've, you've identified yeah, a couple of the big issues and in, in I suppose what the Americans would call antitrust and we would call competition policy. And yeah, that, that the, the, uh, the rise of the tech giants um, and their market power is bothering people uh, everywhere at the moment. And, and it's a very hard one to, to disentangle about it. it do the, the tech giants need reining in and the respectable views on both sides. And, and it, it doesn't help either that, as you say, social platform markets, your, your Googles, your Facebooks, your Twitters, um, almost necessarily, um, default to one big liquid marketplace for obvious reasons. Um, and it's very hard to tell whether this is a good thing because consumers benefit because all their friends are on Facebook and not scattered across half a dozen different places. So it's very hard to disentangle whether they, the tech giants uh, are uh, doing a good job and providing a very good service, and they are. Uh, or whether they have gone past some mark where the product they're offering carries downsides of too high prices or too little competition and they've become too powerful for the, their own boots. I'm, I'd, I'd say two things about that. I, I would tend to uh, be a little bit careful of intervening in fast-moving tech markets. They're very hard to predict. We don't really know if Facebook is going to be the thing we know today in the same position in five years' time. I mean, Facebook dislodged uh, its predecessor. Somebody may dislodge Facebook. It's no longer as popular as it used to be. Uh, and I'm sure they're paranoid about the next big thing around the corner. I'd be slow to act until I see how the tech plays out a bit more. Because in a lot of these markets, there's a realistic chance that someone could knock them off with a better product. The one area that I do think uh, really does need attention, you mentioned it in passing, was the tech giants buying out competitors. And, you know, the, the killer acquisition, as the phrase goes, that the thing that might have been the seed for the next Facebook or the next whatever it is, uh, you buy it out before it gets to um, much of a chance of threatening your space. And the international regulators have been looking at a number of these. I, I think that's an area that should definitely be patrolled harder than it has been. The other big debate beyond the big tech companies is whether enforcement of mergers has been rigorous enough. And there have been a number of markets, hospital, I mean, the American healthcare system, as you know, is a mess already. Uh, but it's not helped if you let all the big hospitals merge. And you give even more pricing power to people who are already gouging the consumer quite badly. So I think there is an argument about the tech companies in particular buying out potential competitors. And there's a wider argument about uh, bigger companies merging. And perhaps there hasn't been quite enough of a focus on the potential market power that some mergers have created. Just finally, uh, Donald, you've been around for a while uh, and you've seen markets go up and down and monetary policy loosened and tightened and fiscal policy <laughs> loosened and tightened over the years. And for 20 years, we saw... Uh, 
this uh, often surprisingly low uh, inflation situation, which some people um, said was due to globalization and the, the rise of China's ability to produce cheap manufactured goods and plenty of migration, which kept the lid on wage growth in many countries. Um, what do you think's really changed here? Or is it just a temporary thing before we get back on the horse of low inflation? Yeah, look, they're, they're good questions. I think the, the two big things, well, three perhaps, that made a difference were uh, the whole Reserve Bank Act and the change of the framework for monetary policy, and possibly taking it out of the hands of politicians as well, so that Reserve Banks, central banks were told your job is to get inflation under control, never mind the electoral cycle or anything else. That's your job. Get on with it. So I think there was a shift in, in you know, the, the theory around uh, anti-inflation economic policy, independent reserve banks, central banks was a jolly good idea. Uh, I think the second element was, as you mentioned, China and other developing economies becoming part of the global supply chain. And basically, if you think of the world as a single economy, you know, there was just a huge capacity to produce more stuff as China and India and Vietnam and all these other places became part of the global economy. And, you know, 40, 50, 100 million more people starting producing things in China didn't even begin to, to reach the limits of China and India and Vietnam and the Philippines uh, opportunities to produce more stuff. Uh, so the supply side of the world economy got a boost. And the other thing that, that it uh, has made a difference, I think, is just, even though it's not very much in the official statistics, the immense productivity gains that, that the digital economy has brought to us. I mean, just this very conversation we're having um, would have been a nightmare to set up otherwise. You know, it just we'd have to be physically together. The data we wanted, you'd have to go to a library and get out a hardcover copy of international financial statistics. <laughs> and, you know, the, the old stuff we used to do. And now we can do it. All the research you need to do a decent uh, project on something topical you do in a morning that could be yeah, a month's work for someone previously. So I, I think the, uh, a better focus on controlling inflation, uh, China and others joining the global economy and technological productivity gains for me would be the, the three things that kept inflation down. And, and in response to your question, did, has inflation got away from us? Uh, or will we go back to the way we were? I, I'm inclined to think at the moment that if those three drivers are still in play, then we're probably going to go back to the way we were because none of those has, has done its dash yet. Well, Donald, thank you very much for um, your time. I really enjoy the perspective from someone who's seen high inflation in the past because sometimes there's a lot of our younger listeners uh, who've never seen anything like this before. So it's... Um, the, the, when I, where I grew up in Ireland, and we, we uh, you know, 15-20% inflation. When my first job, I can remember, I joined a union and we uh, we would put forward a collective you know, bargaining agreement bid, as you did back then, and we were looking for 20%. 
this was in 1973, 1974, and inflation had been running at those sort of levels before that and ran at those sort of levels afterwards. So, yeah, it's a wake-up call for, for people who didn't live through that. But that said, um, I think we, we are probably in a better place uh, to deal with inflation issues than the flounderers were who were trying to control it back in the 70s and 80s. Thank you very much, Donald Curtin, for being on When the Facts Change. Up after the break, we speak to Jared Kerr from Kiwi Bank, an economist who keeps a close eye on what's happening with international prices, inflation overseas, why we're seeing such strong inflation, and how much of it might actually be coming from local industries with some market power. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Well, welcome back, Jared Kerr, to uh, When the Facts Change. And boy, these inflation facts keep keep changing. Um, what do you think's going on um, globally with inflation uh, that um, perhaps is surprising us more than we expected uh, towards the end of last year? Well, for starters, we had a massive demand shock. We came out of the COVID uh, lockdowns globally and spent a lot of money, particularly online. And places like Amazon were you know, recording record volumes. Um, so a huge demand shock from the consumer side. And then at a time when uh, ports and manufacturers were you know, facing... Uh, COVID challenges and disruptions, and we saw disruptions to global supply chains, 
um, global supply chain seized and we saw the cost of shipping uh, increase fivefold. So a lot of the inflation that we're seeing now is generated offshore. We've also had some geopolitical uh, risks arising and we've seen the price of oil um, pick up as well. So, you know, not only are we paying more for all the goods that we are shipping into this country, but we're also paying a lot more for petrol. And petrol prices are up 30% uh, in the last year. So our imported inflation is running at 7%. So the stuff that we import, up 7%. That's the main driver. Yeah, but it's not just imported inflation. When you look at the non-tradables part of the stats NZ figures, which in theory um, cover those areas that aren't influenced by uh, international prices, uh, which should be somewhat isolated, plenty of inflation there too. Can you talk about what's what's driving that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So we've had this offshore shock. And domestically, we're generating more inflation as well. So the domestically generated inflation we call non-tradables, that's running at 5.3%. So again, well above the idea that inflation should be running around 2%. You know, it's more than more than double. And we're seeing a lot of pricing pressure coming uh, out of construction, anything to do with the housing sector, household goods, even electronics. Um, we're seeing gains in, in prices there. So... It's becoming more broad-based. Uh, companies feel that they have the ability to pass on higher prices, and it's hitting the consumer. Now, in some areas, we've got um, uh, monopolies and uh, duopolies, and I'm curious about um, whether a company that has some market power can take an opportunity when there's a shortage of supply and an increase in demand to push through a price increase that maybe they wouldn't have gotten through in the past or simply, you know, flex their muscles, if, if, if you like. Um, is, is, uh, is now a time uh, when people who are able to exercise market power uh, can strike while the iron's hot? I think so. I think we've seen that in, in many sectors. Um, businesses feel they have, you know, the urgency and, and also the ability to pass on um, higher prices. Don't forget, you know, their customer base has to be able to pay um, as well. But these companies and in, in certain industries, particularly construction and, and household um, building materials, you're seeing some huge price increases coming through through a lack of alternative, a lack of substitutes. So, yeah, I, I think the businesses that have the ability to pass on higher prices are definitely doing so. Now, we've seen um, the uh, Commerce Commission uh, have a look at the fuel sector where there had been an increase in margins and they've uh, just made some changes to the structure of the market, which they hope will... Um, take some of that pressure out and the supermarket sector is in the midst of its market study and uh, again the initial evidence suggested that they had higher margins than in other countries. Um, is New Zealand uh, particularly vulnerable to um, companies exercising market power at a time uh, like this given that we have quite a few sectors where there, there is a concentration of you know, maybe one or two or even three or four who are, are quite profitable and um, in some cases able to, to use that power. Yeah, I think you've answered that question um, 
Bernard, there are certainly some <laughs> sectors out there where there is a oligopolistic trading happening. Uh, you know, very few market players, and and yeah, I, I think we're seeing some price pressure coming through. Um, you know, the the best example of this, I think, is the is the building industry right now. You mentioned that uh, you know there's plenty of demand for building materials. You know, record high building consents, huge demand from the government, from the commercial sector, and um, a lack of uh, alternatives from perhaps overseas, perhaps because um, the rules about what building materials you can use are quite strict and only certain types of materials can can be used. Do you think that it might uh, get too much for uh, consumers, buyers, who um, at some point choke, if you like, or you know just can't take it anymore and start to pull back from the market. Yeah, I think there's a, a real risk we see that um, in the housing market in, in coming years. I mean, we've we've all read the stories of you know the price pressure and and trying to build a home. You know, costs of of producing dwellings going up 16. 20 30 percent you know just on the last year and and uh, you know some buyers having to pull out of the market as a result um, the sad thing in all of this Bernard is that it's very difficult to build affordable homes when the costs of construction's gone up um, you know some 20 percent in the last year so yeah there, there is an issue there um, and one that I, I don't see being resolved in the near term. And um, also you've got you know consumers, the ones buying the food and the petrol, who are seeing their wages uh, increase at a significantly slower rate than inflation. Uh, this week we got some fresh figures on uh, wage growth. Can you tell us what sort of real wage deflation that we're seeing at the moment or certainly in the December quarter? Well, yeah, as you say, um, wages actually picked up um, in the in the December quarter. So we've seen wages rise um, from the low twos uh, to about two point eight percent at the moment. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it, it is actually the highest we've seen in in twelve years. Um, but that compares to an inflation rate of six percent. So, you know, your real wages are negative. Um, you're running backwards and it, it, it is a concern and it, I think it is something which will need, you know, time to, to play out. In our forecast, we've got headline inflation coming down, which is good um, because of a lot of the international factors that I mentioned before. So hopefully we find ourselves in a situation where inflation is running at 3%, maybe less, but we're also forecasting wages to keep rising. So we hope to see wages rising towards 4% by the end of this year and hopefully we'll find ourselves in a situation of real wage growth. Oh, that's good when the lines cross, like in Ghostbusters. Uh, uh, and, and you reckon later this year we'll be back in the, um, in the black, if you like, in terms of having some real wage growth. Well, if we're right on the on the headline inflation, yeah. Um, if the the global supply chains free up, and we've seen signs that already shipping companies are reducing their costs, um, it, and I don't, I doubt petrol prices will have risen another thirty percent in the next year. So I think they'll come off. Um, if we're right on that front, then you know headline inflation will head back towards three percent, hopefully below. 
uh, at a time when we've got a record low unemployment rate and wages are lifting, uh, I can really see a situation where wages are growing close to 4% and inflation is hopefully at 3 or below. One thing that surprised this week was the wage inflation, the labour cost index wage inflation, was actually a little bit lower than some people had forecast. Do you think that um, the power of workers, either through unions or through their ability to negotiate better contracts, individual contracts, um, do you think that um, those muscles uh, to flex power, if you like, market power, on the wage side of things, Maybe they're a little bit atrophied from you know a while ago. Do you th- do you think it might take a bit longer for some of that market power to show through in wage inflation this time? Uh, potentially, we, wages and labour market data are, are very lagging, so they take time to to feed through. You can have really strong economic growth, and about nine months later, you see. Um, you know, drops in unemployment rates and, and lifting in, in wages. So we saw really strong economic growth last year. Um, we're expecting that to feed through into wages this year. So we have seen wages pick up. Um, they picked up in line with our forecast, um, and we think that they will continue to grow um, over the year ahead because just how tight the labour market is and the anecdotes that we're hearing from our customers. Uh, you know, our customers are telling us that they want to hire, it's hard to hire, it's hard to find the right workers. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, the, the only thing you can really do is, is push up the price to try and attract workers. Um, so we're, we're hearing of, you know, quite a lot of uh, resignations, you know, people leaving and finding work elsewhere, um, picking a pay rise along the way. Um, and we're also hearing, particularly in, in horticulture and, and primary services, that there's you know some real big gains there. Um, and then you speak of construction, and wow, there's been some huge, huge wage rises in construction. So, generally speaking, you know there, there could be something in what you're saying. There could be a bit of atrophy there, given that we've had very subdued wage growth for ten years. Um, but I think we're breaking through that now. Now, one of the um, areas that is different this time around with reserve banks and central banks responding to inflation is this idea that um, we've had a supply shock, that um, COVID, in theory, and maybe some particular issues in the energy market has essentially uh, restricted the response of supply when we've seen you know, an increase in demand that's come from looser fiscal and monetary policy post-COVID. Uh, but still, even though it's you know, not the, um, the government's fault or consumers or workers' fault, um, that supply stock shock is still forcing central banks to punish us, I suppose, or, or tighten monetary policy to try to keep inflation under control. Even uh, even if we know or we think or hope <laughs> that that the supply shock is temporary, um, you know, how much of a balance is it for central banks to um, respond to a temporary supply shock with monetary policy action? Um, how long do they sort of wait before they decide? Uh, actually, it's maybe not so temporary, and it sort of doesn't matter. We just have to squash this to avoid people starting to believe that it's permanent. Bernard, I'm an economist, and all this talk of supply and demand, I'm just loving it. Uh, <laughs> for, <laughs> for, 
for starters, I think we go back to that point that there was a demand shock to start with. And it occurred at a time when global shipping uh, capacity had failed to keep up with demand. So you had a, a shortage, you know, a creaky supply chain to, to begin with. Um, and then add all the confusion and disruption from COVID and the closure of ports and manufacturers and, and you had seized um, supply chains. So that supply shock that you talk about, you look through as a central banker, um, but that demand shock that we had, the much stronger than expected demand coming out of COVID is something you can't deny forever. And this is the debate that's going on around the world right now, um, when do central banks respond? And our central bank was one of the first to get off the ground and say, well, actually, we're going to respond and we're going to respond quite quickly. And they were one of the first central banks to start lifting interest rates. The other central banks at the time were miles away. The RBA was talking 2024, the Fed was talking 2023, and you know, fast forward to today, just a couple of months um, after the RBNZ started, and they're all pulling forward their uh, forecasted rate hikes to March and and this year. So, the demand side of the economy is far stronger than anyone anticipated. And yes, we're trying to look through um, the supply shocks and hoping that these. Um, you know, shipping lines and and uh, other disruptions play out this year and go back to something more normal. But the, the getting the, the global supply chains back to where they need to be is going to take a few years. So maybe Adrian Orr was maybe a bit ahead of the curve, um, at least on this one. Yeah, he, he he was compared to other central banks, most definitely. Jared Kerr there from uh, QBank. Thanks, Jared. It's great to have you on. When the facts change. Well, thanks there to Jared Kerr uh, from Kiwi Bank, also to Donald Curtin, an independent uh, economist looking at the competition sector. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was this week on When the Facts Change. And remember, we are a podcast that comes out every week, so you need to hit your subscribe buttons and make sure you get it regularly so you can find out what's going on in the political economy. I'm Bernard Hickey for When the Facts Change, a podcast brought to you on the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with KiwiBank. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.